Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. Is war ever justified? If so, can Christians participate in killing? In this episode, we delve into a sensitive and controversial subject to figure out what the Bible has to teach us about how we should treat our enemies. Our aim here is not to be provocative, but faithful to what our Lord has taught us. Here now is the conclusion of our series on killing, off script 38, Killing in War, a Christian view of violence. Welcome everyone. We're on our last episode of our killing series, and today we're talking about killing in war. So our focus is going to be what is the Christian position on killing in war? Is it right? Is it ever right? Who's it right for? Who's it wrong for? And what, uh, what does the Bible say about the subject? So I'm just going to get the ball rolling here by making a wide-sweeping Old Testament statement, which is that God approved war for Israel, and it was not considered sinful to kill in war under the Old Covenant. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. There's... The wars that God um, that God commanded them to go on. There were times when they would freestyle and go on their own wars, and that right. was not correct. But if, uh, if the war was commissioned by God, then yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's probably dozens of examples of where God sanctioned and said, you know, go into this valley and fight the Philistines or whatever it may be. So, yes, that is a bedrock truth. Okay, so we all agree that, for example, when Joshua went into Canaan and fought all these wars that we read about in the book of Joshua, this was under God's direction. It was the right thing to do. It was holy war, if we could put it that way. And at the same time, there were limitations as to what was supposed to happen. There were actually a few times where there was what's called a harem uh, in Hebrew, which is uh, is where something is forbidden, and you're not allowed to take spoils of war in those cases. But but other than that, I mean, warfare was pretty pretty mundane, pretty typical. All ancient people did it. What? God. In many cases, God had specific instructions that were weird. Like what? Breaking pitchers and marching around cities and I wouldn't call it typical. It's just what I'm right. God God made it clear in many cases that you're not winning this battle because you're strong and mighty. You're winning this battle because Yahweh is on your side. Yeah. Taking the praise team out to war with you. Yeah. Jehoshaphat. Yeah. Thank you for bringing those up. That's a great point that there were actually quite a few instances where God wanted to do things a different way. But to your larger point that people fought each other a lot. Yes. Right. Right. (laughs) That's and, uh, you know, capital punishment was also part of the law of Moses, and so was killing an intruder. There, there was a rule that if a thief broke in and you killed that person, that you would not be punished for it. So as far as violence goes, I mean, it was approved for war, and it was approved for self-defense. And I, I feel like any—and there are some Christians who try to deny that. I've never found their cases compelling, honestly. (laughs) They have to slice and dice the Bible to do it. But, I mean, I think it's pretty non-controversial that in the Old Testament we have plenty of approved violence, and it's not even an issue that comes up. 
And then we get to John 13 with the uh, Last Supper and the New Commandment, which in a nutshell is love. And there are cases throughout the New Testament where Jesus eschewed violence and he even commanded a radical, it's probably one of his most radical teachings of, of, you know, loving your enemies. There's the case in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter uh, cut the ear of a soldier that was coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus told Peter that he who draws the sword will die by it. There's cases where Jesus didn't resist his own crucifixion. Stephen didn't resist his own execution and martyrdom. Uh, so there's a lot of cases in the New Testament, and that's one of the big di- differences between the two sections of the Bible that, you know, where violence is a common theme in one and anti-violence is a theme in, in the other. For me, this really comes home in the Sermon on the Mount, mm. where Jesus says repeatedly, you have heard it was said, and then he quotes the Torah, he quotes the law. And then he says, but I say unto you, and gives a commandment. And he does this repeatedly in chapter 5. And what we see there is Jesus elevating the standard that his followers should live by. So, for example, instead of condemning murder, he condemns anger as, as just as bad as murder. And he says that lust is just as bad as adultery. And I think a lot of us, what we do is we look at the Old Covenant and we say, oh, well, pff, I'm glad I didn't live under that time. It's so much easier now. You just believe and then do nothing. Well, that's, obviously I'm being facetious here, but that's not at all what a follower of Jesus should say. I mean, Jesus brings things up to a much higher level in the Sermon on the Mount. And there are actually four texts that bear on this question of whether Christians should participate in war. The first of, of which comes from chapter 5, verse 5 where it says, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And when I looked up the word meek in Merriam-Webster, it said, those who endure injury with patience and without resentment. And so the meek are the people that are not forcing their way in the world. And Jesus is saying they're going to inherit the earth. Then Mm -hmm. you you get in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, the second text, for they shall be called the sons of God. And the Greek here is, is pretty interesting as is the Latin translation, the, the, the Greek says literally peace doers. It's the word peace and then the word to make or to do uh, right after it. So it's not, it's not like the gun where it's like, this is a peacemaker and you kill everyone <laughs> and now it, you have peace. No, it's, it's not just the ends justify the means, but the means itself. Mm-hmm. So the opposite of peacemakers would be violence makers or strife makers or war makers. So this is, this is actually a pretty strong statement. It's the opposite of those who do wars, those who do peace. Uh, then the third one is Matthew 38 to 42, which Jesus says, You've heard said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And in the law, it said, if a man, this is from Leviticus, if a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So that was the law of Moses that Jesus is living under at this time. And yet he's calling his disciples to a higher level. Instead of saying... Is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So just like go and get your justice 
go and bring it to the judge and get your justice. He's saying, no, I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. And then he gives the three examples. Now, I think it's important to realize here, when it comes to the, the phrase, do not resist evil or do not resist an evildoer, we really, we really have three options. Option number one is total passive non-resistance, which is the classic Amish position on this, which is if someone comes to attack you or attack your family member or child or whatever, you should literally do nothing. So that's one interpretation. A second interpretation is to say, well, there's an exception in the case of mortal danger or it's okay to use violence if you're doing it on behalf of the government, like in war or being a police officer, but when it's personal, then you're not allowed to do it. And, and so option two is to kind of like massage the words of Jesus a little bit to get them to knock the rough edges off them, <laughs> to make it more palatable to mm -hmm. real life difficulties and situations. And then option three is what I like to call confrontational non-resistance. And this is taking a cue from Second Peter 3, 9, where it says, do not repay evil for evil. Now that's just like what Jesus said. Jesus says, don't resist evil. And in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, do not repay evil for evil. And I think that's really the heart of what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, don't stop evil. What he's saying is, don't resist evil with evil. And I say that because of the three examples he gives. The three examples he gives are actually confronting evil without becoming evil yourself or using evil yourself. So for me, I find that to be the most compelling option because... It doesn't do any violence to the words of Jesus, and it has the potential to redeem or to bring about the redemption of the person that you're confronting. I know we've talked more in depth about these verses 38 through 41 in your fellowship, and that it's more than meekness the way we would traditionally view it, almost as being spineless, almost be, as being wimpy. In here, um, you are not returning evil for evil, but you are confronting, as you said, and you are sort of issuing a challenge, and you are making the person question and consider why they're treating you that way and you are um in some cases like asking to be respected can you unpack that a little bit more yeah this is based on the work of walter wink a, a scholar a late scholar of new york city but essentially what he says is that in their society they didn't use the left hand in public discourse because it brought shame on you so we're talking about a right-handed uh, slap to the cheek and in order for that to happen what Jesus says is, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, for a right-handed person to strike you on the right cheek, it has to be a backhand. If I hit you with my left hand, I, I can hit you with my fist. But we're talking about a status situation where a landowner to a peasant, a father to a child, um, somebody is putting somebody else in their place. And they're doing it in a very insulting way. And what Jesus says is turn the cheek. So if you turn the cheek, if they slap you on this cheek and then you turn it so you're only presenting them with the left cheek, you're making yourself a target for that person to hit you with their fist. But if they hit you with their fist, says Walter Wink, they have to make you their equal because only equals fight with fists. Mm. So this is a lot of cultural stuff that mm. doesn't necessarily translate into American culture. But that's the last thing they want to do. The whole point of slapping you with the backhand was to put you in your place. So you daring them to hit you. And if they hit you, you can hit them back because now they've just made you an equal, 
right? So it's actually the opposite of becoming a doormat. <laughs> it's like, hey, I have dignity. Watch this, mm-hmm. you know? And then number two there is if they sue you for your coat, give them your cloak also. Look, if they're suing you for your coat on your back, you have no money. You have no property because they would take that first. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody wants your coat unless, <laughs> unless it's like the last thing, right? So this is somebody that suffered at the butt end of a predatory economic system, and they are completely destitute. The person is now taking them to court for the very coat. And in their society, they didn't wear underwear, so except for the high priest. So you've got, <laughs> um, you've got two garments. You've got your cloak, your onesie, and then you've got your coat that you wear on top of that, and now they're suing you for your coat. You're down to your last piece of clothing. Yeah, and Jesus is saying, take off your cloak also. So let, let's put it this way. If you're in a courtroom and they win the suit for the coat and you're like, you know what? Take this too. You, you've just stripped naked in front of the... I mean, this is like a protest. This is, mm. this is unmasking the evil for what it really is. It's saying, you are stripping me naked. You have, you have taken the clothes off my very back. And here's the cultural quirk. Uncovering someone's nakedness is this biblical, really mm-hmm. loaded biblical phrase. Yeah. And it would put shame on the person who did the uncovering, mm-hmm. not the person who's uncovered. And you see that in, in some of the places in Leviticus where they talk about uncovering the nakedness of someone else. Now, a lot of that's metaphorical, but Genesis this would too. be literalizing it yeah. in a illustration, a, a demonstration of the predatory economic practices going on. And then number three, carry the pack for the soldier a second mile. The soldier was not allowed to uh, compel anyone to carry it more than one mile. That was the law. And there were abuses we have on record from Egypt where people were getting in trouble for doing this. And the, the rule was one mile, that's it. After a mile, you can't force a conquered person to carry your stuff any farther than that. And the penalty would be pretty nebulous. I mean, there were a few different options. You could be given barley rations instead of wheat. Uh, you could no one wants that you would have to stand outside and hold a dirt clod all day outside the the tent of the commander or you could be whipped you could be fined i mean there's a lot of different possible responses to this but let's put it this way no soldier wanted to find out if their commander was in a good mood that day Mm -hmm. and so here's a jew who's completely disempowered they're occupied by the evil romans and the Roman somehow catches a Jew in a position where he can't run away, he can't like get out, and he's forced to become a mule for the empire to carry the soldier's wares for a mile. And they had mile markers, so it was very easy to tell when a mile's up. Now, the normal Jewish response in this situation is just to be furious and humiliated and probably cursing in Hebrew the whole mile. And then when you get there, throw the bag on the ground and like say something and run away. I don't know. Um, But Jesus is like, carry it for a second mile. What is that? It flips the entire power structure on its head because now the soldier is now following the peasant and saying, can I have my bag back? And the peasant's like, no, I'm going to go another mile. And he's like, you can't. The law is just like, all right, I'm going to go anyhow. And now, so he's like going ahead and the soldier's chasing after him. He's like, come on, can I have my bag back? It's subverting the law. It's, it, what, what, it's, what it's done is very cleverly, subversively confronted the system of injustice without, without using evil or using the same injustice. It's not like you are now gang up with a bunch of other Jews and you capture the soldier and you force him to carry your stuff. No, it's not, it's not, doing, it's not resisting evil with evil, but it's, it's standing against the evil in a confrontational way. So I, I, 
I find this like third option really mm -hmm. compelling because it does no violence to the words of Jesus, like uh, option two does, where we're always just like trying to find an exception. And at the same time, it fits like the Jesus way of dealing with life. Like mm -hmm. he always did stuff like this. Mm -hmm. He would always find that third option and suddenly flip the tables in a power system where he had no power and suddenly they're asking him, oh, well, please do this or please do that. And he's like, well, you know, if you tell me this, then I'll tell you that. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think that's, that's pretty cool. But then we also have the cross itself, like you mentioned, Dan. I mean, that's extremely powerful as far as the way Jesus handled himself in that situation. Now, of course, Jesus was dying for the sins of the world there. We're right. not dying for the sins of the world. And that's what he told Peter is, you know, how else is this supposed to come to pass? But, you know, through what's going on right now. And that's why he, you know, told Peter to stay his hand. Yeah. <clears throat> I think I think it's a lot different when you're in a um, potential martyrdom situation. You're, uh, you've devoted your life to God. You're uh, spreading his message. You know that there might be some danger. And your death stands as a testament to, you know, the strength of your convictions. <laughs> But that's a very sort of unique situation. And I think it would defeat the purpose if, if, you know, a missionary who was about to be killed for Christ would somehow seek to defend himself. I mean, I think you need to be led by the spirit in that situation. And, and there were times when Paul evaded capture and sort of resisted in that way. But there were also times where people just like in Stephen's case, where they just lifted themselves up and you know, stood at their death stood as a testament. And I think that's totally situational. And as I said, it's, it has to be something that's spirit led in, in that, that specific situation that's going on. Right. So, I mean, we're not Jesus. We're not going to die for the sins of the world, but there is also a sense in which he is an example to us on how to handle ourselves in suffering. Like it says in first Peter two twenty one. for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. There is definitely an example there. I think you're right as far as like martyrdom goes. You really are in a different mode because you're testifying. You're, everything you do is sort of amplifies a witness. And that's not really the question before us today. Right. Our question is, should Christians kill in war? You know, what we've said so far is that the old, from an Old Testament perspective, yeah, there were clear conditions where it would be right. And from a New Testament perspective, what we're saying, I think, is that Jesus changed it and now rather than resisting i mean this is a roman occupation this is an unjust quote-unquote evil empire that has taken over god's promised land to his to the descendants of abraham i mean it doesn't get more stark than this and mm -hmm. jesus is like no carry his bag for an extra mile meanwhile there's all kinds of other people before jesus and after that are saying God can't steer a parked car. Let's get some weapons and let's, not that they had cars back then, but let's, <laughs> let's get a... moving and then God will, will be here and when even, we need him. And there was a huge revolt. Yeah. And even during Jesus' time, I mean, that's what his disciples initially thought he came to do was to, to, to lead an uprising. So that, that mode of, of resistance was very much active in Hebrew culture during, during the occupation. It never stopped. Here's another statement from... Paul, because uh, if this is really a teaching of the New Testament, we should find it in multiple places, not just in the Sermon on the Mount. We find this in Romans 12, the second half of the chapter is really pretty woven in there. But in verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, 
but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, that's a pretty strong set of commandments. There. Yeah, there's yeah. not a lot of wiggle room. Yeah, like with the word never. <laughs> those, those darn absolute statements. So what about joining the military? What, is, what, is our, what are our thoughts on that? Let me do two more verses real quick. Okay. One of them is 1 Thessalonians 5.15. It's super short. It says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So, I mean, these are big, juicy, absolute statements. And then the last one is 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. So mm-hmm. what, what I'm saying to you is that this is the teaching of Jesus. This is the teaching of Paul. This is the teaching of Peter. And it's also the teaching of the early Christians. It's not like it was just a biblical thing and then they... The rest of Christians in the second century, for example, just all joined the the military or something like that. In the second century, they're very strong on this. And it endured to the modern era. I mean, Gandhi got his philosophy of nonviolence from Jesus, as did Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I'm saying is there's there's a legacy here of interpreting Jesus literally on the Sermon on the Mount and taking his words at face value. Now, there have been movements that have offered other interpretations of this, but I think the mainstream, at least in the first 300 years, was very much a face value reading of what Jesus had said. So, I mean, we, we can look at those later, but back to your question, should Christians join in the military? We can go back to that, but we, I want to narrow it down to should Christians kill in war? Because like the military is a complicated thing. It's so big. Mm. Right. You could be in the military as a cook. But for every 10 people that join the military, one one of them is put in a position where, they, where they're shooting at somebody. Right. So I think for... So let's le- isolate that person for a moment. I want to draw one more distinction, okay. which is, I think, extremely important. Romans 12 or Romans 13 distinction. In Romans 12, which I read just a, just a couple minutes ago, what it says is never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. It says do not repay anyone evil for... And so on. So mm-hmm. Romans 12, there's no question among any theologian or scholar that Romans 12 addresses the Christian. Mm -hmm. What is the Christian to do? This is what the Christian is to do. It starts with being a a living sacrifice, not conforming our mind to this age. And it goes right through a lot of specifics on how we are to treat each other and, and treat other people in general. Then we get to Romans 13. And in Romans 13, the apostle says that God has given the sword to the governments to wield it and to execute justice, and to punish evildoers. Now look, if you're using a sword, you're using, I mean, whether it's metaphorical or literal, mm-hmm. it's saying you're using violence. And so what I believe is that there is a God-given role for the government to use violence justly. Now, of course, some, many governments do not use it justly. 
if, say, for example, America is engaged in what could be called a just war and people are participating in the military in a, in a killing capacity, I think the Christian role is, is clearly dictated in Romans 12. And yet the government and the non-Christian role is in Romans 13. And I think there are just two different roles, and that's just the way the world has to be until Christ comes back to make it all whole and healed. So for a non-Christ follower to join the military, to kill people on behalf of the government in a just conflict, I have no problem with that at all. I would say that is not sin. I would say, if anything, I would even say that was righteous. And I would pray on the side of victory for whoever is the the just side, if you can figure it out. A lot of times, you, obviously, you can't. When I read these verses in Romans 13, um, I don't I don't think Paul was necessarily talking about war or just war. It seems to me like he was talking about, I mean, he begins the chapter by saying, be su- in subjection to the governing authorities. These concepts you could take and transfer to the idea of war and just war. When they're talking about <laughs> bearing the sword, Paul was really talking about for citizens... Well, and and non-citizens, but people in the Roman Empire, I don't see it as much as, I mean, we read this and we think, you know, dictators and Hitler and just war, and I think it could be applied to that as well. But I think it seems to me what Paul was really talking about was um, be in subjection to the government because they have been given the power um, from God to punish evildoers. So you're saying this is this is more related to policing? I would say so. I I think that's what Paul was talking about coming out at the beginning. I mean, he's um, sort of echoing Jesus in that you are supposed to be subject um, to the government. You are supposed to pay taxes. You are not supposed to resist them. It says whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. I think what he's talking about is more an internal case um, and less just war. But I do think the idea could be applied more broadly to just war and to external conflict rather than just internal. Yeah, I'm thinking of verse four where it says, for the government, for he, the ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, I mean, I think you're right. It is more focused on an internal, within the boundary of the empire scenario. I think it would also apply externally. Mm-hmm. And then there are just like so many levels here of, of irony too, because I mean, the government ends up persecuting Christians right. a short time after this. And uh, this is of course written to the Christians in Rome who would suffer just a decade la- later or so at the hands of the government. So obviously if the government is persecuting Christians or executing people unjustly and all the rest, then they're not serving God. They're serving the devil and they're just another kingdom of this world dancing to the drumbeat. But there is a positive, godly role that he gives to the governments as well. So if somebody asked me, Sean, are you against war? I wouldn't say I'm against... I was. I could say I'm against war because I think war is just a terrible thing. But I wouldn't say that I'm against war. I would say I'm against Christ followers disobeying what he said, which is to love your enemies. But if somebody down the road who is not a Christian wants to go join the, the military... I think that's a whole nother conversation. Then it's a question of, well, is America doing good with its military or bad? And that's... <laughs> I don't think any citizen is qualified to judge that. Like you said a moment ago that, you know, I would be in favor of the war if it was just, and I would and I would pray for victory. I mean... <sighs> I want to pray on the side of justice. Mm-hmm. Sure. But you're a man with limited information. 
you you have maybe what the news tells you and maybe you have a friend in another country and what they see on the ground who's to say what is just and what is unjust i mean you can look at world war ii and say you know that was a joke we got involved for good reasons there but and that's coming from a completely subjective point of view as well but like every other conflict since then from uh the korean conflict up to you know our engagements currently who's to judge if, if that's a just venture that that we're on and i would be very hesitant to pray in favor of that Mm -hmm. well and even if you do make that decision um going in that you think it is just war and everything that they're currently doing um is justified you take an oath um when you enlist that you will obey orders so if things change you're you're sort of um banking on things continuing to to have those uh, just intentions you're you're assuming that that's going to continue and when you take the oath you will be then um, obligated to follow whatever the commands are in the future it's it's a fraught situation i think a lot of people for a lot of people the military is a great option for them they've either had behavioral issues and they need to straighten their life out and people use it for that reason there is, uh, to varying degrees, free health care and, and, or not free, but it's paid for, hopefully. I mean, obviously, that's a whole other can of worms, uh, and as well as education. But you do open yourself up to the possibility of having to take someone's life. And if you're on the battlefield and you're presented with that possibility and you opt not to, you're putting your colleagues at risk. So it's a very sort of fraught situation. That said, I don't know that I could come out and say Christians shouldn't join the military. That to me is a is it's it's more complicated than than what's addressed in the Bible. Right. When it comes to the subject of joining the military or not, you have the issue of the oath. I mean that yeah. and allegiance. Because, but at the same time, in America, the military, as in a lot of places in the government, has all kinds of like exemptions, religious exemptions, because of other groups that have come before us, mm-hmm. like Jehovah's Witnesses, who don't participate in in military. And there's conscientious objector status. And like even joining something like the Coast Guard, you don't actually have to swear an oath. You can just affirm that you're gonna you're gonna do this, that, or the other. It is more of a gray area and, and the and the military is such a huge collection of organizations mm-hmm. that it's really hard to say that if you're a barber in the military that you're culpable for the guy whose hair you cut killing a child because he thought it was an adult in some foreign country. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that. I think I often find it difficult to judge outsiders, like people that are not followers of Christ, mm. because I don't know what standard to judge them by. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I can judge myself based on what Jesus said. Jesus said, love my enemies. Now, you, it can be loving to be physically aggressive with somebody, I, I can see how that's possible. Yeah. But if you kill them, I mean, that's really just it. I, I don't see how that's loving. You know, there's no hope for that person going forward. It's not for their good that they're dead. Um, at least not in a scenario I can imagine. So I want to affirm the teaching of Jesus while at the same time recognizing that there is a need for police. There is a need for military. If a country doesn't have a military, especially a country like the United States, It'll just get attacked and taken over by other countries that do have a military. It's a non-starter to say that all militaries have to disband. When Jesus comes back, yes, that's going to happen. I would love to see it happen before Jesus comes back, where we have drone wars or something, and just like whoever wins drone-on-drone battle (laughs) or video game battle, whoever gets the most points, I don't know, but like some other way other than killing people to solve the problem. 
I would love to see that too. I, I don't know if that would ever happen. But uh, a lot of my thinking on this comes from a number of these early Christians. For example, uh, this guy Hippolytus, who was, who was an influential Christian in Rome around the year 215, he says, A soldier of the civil authority must be taught not to kill men, and to refuse to do so if he is commanded, and to refuse to take an oath. If he is unwilling to comply, he must be rejected for baptism. This is reflecting the scenario where Christianity is starting to spread into the Roman military, and soldiers are starting to say, hey, I, w- I want to be a Christian. And Hippolytus is, is a church leader. He's dealing with new converts coming in, and he's trying to figure out, like, what's the, what's the rule here? Because a lot of times you couldn't leave the military mm-hmm. until they said you could leave the military. Well, it's like that today, right? So can you be a Christian in the military? That was kind of like a question that he's, he's dealing with. And he's like, all right, well, if he's taught not to kill, and even if he's commanded to kill, he refuses it, and he refuses to take any oaths, then he could become a Christian. <laughs> but then he goes on to say, a military commander or civic magistrate who wears the purple must resign or be rejected. If an applicant or a believer seeks to become a soldier, he must be rejected, for he has despised God. So, I mean, this is obviously a very strong position that we see here from Hippolytus. And Hippolytus is not writing a treatise on war. It's not a controversial issue. He's just explaining how the church functions and how it, how it works when, okay, let's say somebody was an actor and they want to join the church. This is the policy. Somebody's a soldier. They want to join the You know, he's just going through a list of, of different options here. So, I, I don't know. I, I find that to be pretty interesting. And there are countries like Israel that have compulsory military service. We touched on that briefly a little bit. I think there's also some smaller Scandinavian countries that also have it. So if you're forced to go into the military, I would hope that there are exceptions in your country for conscious objectors like you mentioned. Yeah. I think about the example set by Desmond Doss, who recently burst onto the scene as this character from history who joined the military but as a combat medic but refused to kill people. It's a great story. It's a true story. And obviously that's sort of a one-off radical thing that that he chose to do. But there are ways that I think God can look at your situation, take your circumstances, say you're forced to join the army and, and you're in and it's wartime, so you ha- you have a you know, a gun on the front lines or something. I think that God has the wherewithal to deliver you from those situations and make it so that you don't violate his commandments. So on, on the question of should Christians join the military, you would say strongly discouraged, but there might be a way in there to be an authentic Christ follower and yet still be part of the system, the military system. Yeah. As you said, it's a gray area. Mm-hmm. I certainly would not encourage somebody to join the military and pursue jobs in the military that put you in those situations like special forces or sniper school, that sort of stuff where you train specifically to do those types of things. Yeah, as Christians, I don't think we should necessarily seek to be in a situation where we have to disobey the government or God. Like, that may happen, but if you have the option to avoid a situation like that, go for where you can um, be submissive to your government and obey God, where you don't have to pit the one against the other and bring yourself to some sort of crisis point. Another another quote that had a, a significant impact on me comes from Origen, and he's writing in the year 248, a response to an anti-Christian who had written a book about 50, 70 years earlier. And he, he writes, In the next place, Celsus urges us to help the king with all our might and to labor with him 
in the maintenance of justice to fight for him if he requires it, to fight under him or lead an army along with him. And then Origen replies, To this our answer is that we do, when occasion requires, give help to kings, and that, so to say, a divine help, putting on the whole armor of God. And this we do in obedience to the injunction of the apostles. Quote, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that, have, that are in authority, end quote. And the more anyone excels in piety, the more effective help does he render to kings, even more than is given by soldiers, who go forth to fight and slay as many of the enemy as they can. And to those enemies of our faith who require us to bear arms for the commonwealth and to slay men, we can reply, Do not those who are priests at certain shrines and those who attend on certain gods as you account them keep their hands free from blood, that they may, with hands unstained and free from human blood, offer the appointed sacrifices to your gods? And even when war is upon you, you never enlist the priests in the army. If that, then, is a laudable custom, how much more so that while others are engaged in battle, these two in other words, Christians, should engage as priests and ministers of God, keeping their hands pure and wrestling in prayers to God on behalf of those who are fighting in a righteous cause and for the king who reigns righteously, that whatever is opposed to those who, are, who act righteously may be destroyed. And he goes on from there. So, I mean, this is the whole idea I get of praying on the side of justice. So, for example, if, since we live in America, we'll talk about our own scenario. If America is in an unprovoked war... America's trying to extend influence in a region in an unjust way. I think the Christian should pray on the side of justice. So that might be against America in certain circumstances, mm. or it might be for America in certain circumstances, because ultimately our allegiance is not to America primarily. I think we can have allegiance to America, but it's not primarily to America. It's to the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And in the kingdom of God, there is this sense of justice. For those listeners that hear this and, and think that, you know, we're maybe coming on a little strong against the military because we do have a strong military tradition in this country, I understand your, perhaps your hard feelings. I have family members and good friends in the military. So I wrestle with it too. But I did want to read a quote by Mahatma Gandhi, who obviously was not a Christian, but he did get his nonviolence philosophy from the teachings of Jesus. Uh, he was making a speech in 1925, which, if you know anything about history, it was a very fraught time, particularly in Europe. Um, he said, Nonviolence requires greater heroism than that of brave soldiers. The world does not accept today, in 1925, the idea of loving the enemy. Even in Christian Europe, the principle of nonviolence is ridiculed. Christians do not understand the message of Jesus. It is necessary to deliver it over again in the way we can understand. But I must say, that so long as we do not accept the principle of loving the enemy, all talk of world brotherhood is an airy nothing. And Martin Luther King had much the same message, and both of these men who drew on the teachings of Jesus led civil rights movements that have reverberated to this day. I mean, nonviolence is one of the foundational cornerstones of, of the civil rights movement that led to you know, the Voting Rights Act in the 60s and, and all these civil rights laws. Um, Right, and these, these teachings that Jesus gave us and that the apostles echoed, and then the early Christians, and I, I wish I had the time, and it wouldn't be too tedious, that I could read out to you all of my quotes from the 2nd, the 3rd, the 4th <laughs> centuries of 
a dozen or more Christians who steadfastly and without hesitation say that we do like Jesus taught and we love our enemies. And we didn't used to do it like this, but mm-hmm. now that we're Christians, this is how we live. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I wish I had time to do that, but uh, I'll just put a link so you can get access to those quotes. But I will say this, that this all did change. And it changed during what we call the Constantinian shift, the time of Constantine, the emperor in the early 300s where he started to favor Christianity to such a degree that the emperor before Constantine, a man named Diocletian, in the year 303, made a rule that forbade any member of the Roman army to be a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you're, you're going to be kicked out of the army in 303. So it went from that point of view to the year 416, about 100 years later, that the rule was... If you weren't a Christian, you couldn't be in the Roman army. So, I mean, talk about a complete flip-flop yeah. within 100 years there. Right. And this, this whole shift, which really starts in the time of Constantine, but then it develops over time, is something where Christianity basically said, well, the Roman Empire used to be a persecutor, but now it's the weapon of the church to enforce you know, what they perceive as God's justice in a situation. And a lot of this depended on a couple of Christians, Ambrose of Milan and Augustine of Hippo, who really brought into Christian, the Christian mainstream the idea of a just war theory. And so that's the idea that if certain criteria are met, then a war is just, and therefore Christians can rightly participate in it. Now, I get the whole concept of a just war theory. I, I think it's actually a very helpful way to measure out things. But even if a war is just, that doesn't mean that Christians should participate violently in that war because of what Jesus said. But regardless of what I think, this is, in fact, what happened in the history of the church. And eventually it came to a point where in the Middle Ages, Charlemagne could say to the, uh, the army that if you find any pagans among those whom you conquer— that are worshiping the old tree gods or whatever else you, they were worshiping, that if they refuse to be baptized, just execute them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Christianity goes from this, like, very peace-loving, you know, where Jesus actually says, blessed are the peacemakers, to the point where it's like, oh, if you don't join us, then we're just going to kill you within however many hundred years that was. And, and you know, the, the church has gone back and forth on how and when violence is justified. But more often than not, people today, you talk to them and they're like, well, hold on, I thought the military was a Christian institution. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't they have Bible studies? Don't they have chaplains? And And we're not like denying that there are Christians in the military, but what we are trying to say is that that is a difficult scenario to be in especially if you're launching missiles or whatever at other people and jesus teaches you to love your enemies the merger with the government was a real challenge to the authenticity of christianity and it was almost inevitable given um the desires of government and the powers of government and its interests um that this almost taking romans 13 and similar things as license um, and endorsements from god to do whatever you want and slap the label of just war on it I think they entered a very dangerous period. And of course, centuries later, the Crusades and other things have continued to give Christianity a bad name. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, think about the Crusades. I mean, how many times do people bring up the Crusades as an example of how Christians should not have a voice in public space? Because when Christians get in charge, you get the Crusades Mm -hmm. or you get the Inquisition or you get some other horrible thing. And we can't deny our history. Our history is our history. I mean, we can say, oh, they weren't real Christians because they didn't follow the teachings of Jesus. We can say that. But like, I I don't know. I mean, it's just it's just a really hard thing that we have to deal with the track record. And I don't think that was an accident. The devil's really good at taking something good and twisting it just a little bit. And over time, it gets so blown out of proportion and blown out of whack from its original meaning and intent. Whereas, Sean, what, what you just said, where they're taking the teachings of Jesus and using it to justify the exact opposite of what Jesus said to do. I mean, that's his MO from the beginning of time. Right. So on the question of uh, killing in war, I want to say depends on if you're a Christ follower and depends on if it's a just conflict. And I, what I hear Dan saying is like, you never really know if it's a just conflict till like 50 years later in the history book. And even then you're not really sure. It's a tough, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, that's my sort of reading of it and what I would agree with. So concluding a little bit here, the job of the Christian is to provide the world with a window on the future kingdom. When, when, The world looks at Christians as a group or individuals. They should see a glimpse into the age to come. They should get a taste or a feel for a world full of peace and wholeness, which is what, in fact, we're looking forward to. And so if we're meant to be a preview of coming attractions and the coming attractions the prophets foretold was an earth full of peace and love then that's the kind of people we want to be and we want to we want to emulate so our message is that there's something worth living for and something worth dying for something lasting something beautiful so i say we need to lay down the sword as christians and pick up the cross Mm -hmm. and follow the one who stood power on its head i mean that's what jesus did over and over he dealt with the situation he trusted in what god had to say to him and then He executed. And when he did, nobody died. Jesus, think about it, won the greatest victory by losing his life to state execution. Mm -hmm. He won the greatest victory by losing his life. And that is supposed to be our example. Not that we go around like trying to get ourselves killed or anything, but we stay faithful to this and, and trust that what God's wisdom is for us at this time is, in fact, the best course of action to pursue. And... In the end, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord to the Christian. So I'm, I'm going to stick with Jesus. The last thing in the world I would want would be to come before Jesus on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord. And he says to me, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? You know what I mean? So like that's for my stakes in the ground. If I'm misinterpreting Jesus, then I am totally willing to see alternate interpretations because for me, what's final is my allegiance to Jesus the King, not my understanding of a particular interpretation of Scripture, because I grow in that over time. I do agree that it takes more courage to take the nonviolent option open to you, to completely surrender your agency in a situation and trust in God and also open yourself up to ridicule from your fellow man who who may accuse you of cowardice or 
whatever Desmond Doss was accused of when he refused to pick up a gun and even train to kill men. He wouldn't even do that. I think that takes more more courage than going along with the flow in your your military unit and, and charging into battle because you're more or less standing alone on something that not everybody believes in. Most people don't, in fact, or a lot of people don't. And most people think you're crazy. Right. But you're not crazy. You're just trying to follow Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, we, we are the people of the resurrection. We believe that death is not the end. We believe that God can undo death. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're not playing by the same rules as everyone else, which frees us to mm-hmm. be different. And that's scary, but it's also cool. Way cool. Yeah, the things Jesus did on the cross were amazing. I love what you said, lay down the sword and take up the cross. Christ put an end to death. And then Colossians 2 also said, he disarmed rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. The things that the cross did um, and that act of self-sacrifice was, you know, the most single powerful. I mean, that was a just war right there. That was a just war um, on death. That was a just war on sin. Um, And it was done 100% justly because it was done through Christ in sinlessness. And what a testament these stories are to like the stories of Desmond Doss or the stories of like this radical person sort of pushing against the, you know, Sean in your, your church history class where you have all these examples through the ages of every sort of epoch of Christianity's people who sort of went against the flow of traffic in radical ways and really, really demonstrated in literal ways Christ's love. Those stories endure today and they last because they're so unusual and because they're so genius in many ways of, wow, I'm in the situation how do I get out of it and also glorify God and God will find a way Mm -hmm. guys. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. We understand that this episode can be tough to hear and we certainly do wrestle with these things. We all know people. uh, And as I said, I have family members in the military. It's it's, Sean and Rose probably do too. It's, it's a very common uh, route to take in, in, in one's life. So we just want to reiterate that, uh, we're coming at this from an angle of figuring things out based on the scriptures, on our understanding of them, discussion and overall love. And uh, we encourage you, if you have something to say to us, please send us some comments. Let us know what you think. Again, we just thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. After listening back through this episode, I realized I never actually quoted Jesus' fourth and most important saying on this subject. So let me just read that out to you quickly now. It's from Matthew 5, 43 to 48, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the saying here is where I was quoting throughout this episode, love your enemies, love your enemies. This is the command Jesus gave, as opposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And then this last little saying here where he says, you therefore must be perfect. I don't think this is taken in a Wesleyan perfectionism sense. I think it's just uh, simply the, the Greek word for complete, mature. And so imperfect love is loving those who love you. And perfect love or complete love is loving those who don't love you as well. This for me 
was the definitive text when I changed my mind on this subject. But anyhow, I hope that you will consider this subject prayerfully. Also, in the show notes for this episode, I cited the quotes we used in this episode, both from the Bible and elsewhere, and I inserted a ton of early Christian statements on the subject to show you what the church believed and how they lived for the first 300 years before the major Constantinian shift in the 4th century. Please take the time to read them in the show notes if you're interested and you want to delve deeper, or head on over to restitudio.org and search for Offscript episode 38. If you're interested in the subject, and maybe this is the first time you've heard a Christian nonviolent position, I encourage you also to check out podcast 15, where I lay out an entire theology of nonviolence from a conference in Atlanta several years ago, or podcast 67, where we posted a debate between two of the top Christian pacifists and two top Christian thinkers defending just war theory as well. So that's podcast 67. Additionally, if you are curious about Desmond Doss, the heroic medic of World War II that Dan referred to, who won the Congressional Medal of Honor while refusing to kill because of his Christian beliefs. And if you haven't seen it yet, you just got to see Hacksaw Ridge. I mean, this movie does portray realistic warfare. It is violent, so you have to be sure it's age appropriate. But the light shines all the brighter when darkness is all around. That's all I'm going to say about that. But Hacksaw Ridge, check it out. And also, if you haven't already, check out the other episodes in this series on killing, including killing the unborn, killing yourself, killing the suffering, and killing criminals. Also, I wanted to read out feedback we received on the last Offscript episode, Killing Criminals, A Christian View of Capital Punishment. Brian writes, this has been an interesting and thought-stimulating series you guys have done. Thank you for that. Can I expect a subsequent episode where you discuss a sort of divine inflicted death? For example, the event with Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, also the deaths of Ananias and his wife Sapphira in Acts 5. If yes, wonderful. If no, then perhaps you could consider it. Well, Brian, as always, thanks for the suggestion. I'll talk to the team and see if they want to get into this subject. It's really quite different from what we've been discussing, but it certainly is an important subject. If anyone else has a suggestion for a future series for Offscripts, if there's a subject you're interested in hearing about, please write in and let us know. Since we have now come to an end of our series on killing, we are searching for our next topic. We'll catch you next time as we seek to get off the world script and live out authentic Christianity.